0: I'm Jamie Lewis, and this is Consumed, a podcast where eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers can get real. Thanks for joining me. Consumed is sponsored in part by Slow Life magazine. Over the past several years, I've written the food column for Slow Life, and I've covered many, many different restaurants and dishes here in Slow County. Some of my favorite subjects have been fried chicken, educational dining, and I even recently wrote about the free bread at three different local eateries. Slow Life is much more, though, so get your hands on a copy every other month. To find out how, visit slowlifemagazine.com. In my career as a food writer, I've had the extraordinary opportunity to write for Life and Time magazine a photo-driven and long-form journal that prides itself on culinary storytelling. That publication is headed up by Antonio Diaz, a young entrepreneur who fell in love with food while working in design for tech firms in San Francisco. The magazine, which started as a hobby, is now an international publication that has covered some of the most significant players in the food industry, from Mexico City to Rome to New Orleans, Yemen, and even Paso Robles. Now based out of Los Angeles, Antonio and his team have most recently won their third Emmy for the PBS series The Migrant Kitchen, which explores California's booming food scene through the eyes of a new generation of chefs whose cuisine is inspired by the immigrant experience. Antonio and I talked about how the magazine and the television show came into existence, and, by extension, we discussed what it means to eat like an American these days, especially in L.A., where cultures can mix and blur into one another. We also talked about the way he grew up, a hyphenated kid with an early obstacle to overcome. Here's my talk with Antonio Diaz. So, I've never been to the Arts District before, which I think is what we're in, right?
1: We are in the Arts District. In Los Angeles. In and Los it's Angeles.
0: very, very cool. Um, some very nice people that you know are letting us use their office, which is like, you know, exposed old brick and um, a view of
1: the city. Shout is, out to Krupa Consulting.
0: Yeah, really kind and generous. So, Antonio, I. I only know you from the little bit of work that I've done with you in life and time, but I know that there's a lot more to you than that. So tell me where you grew up.
1: So I grew up in LA County. My family kind of bounced around from different areas of LA County from San Fernando Valley to Antelope Valley all the way up north um, to Santa Clarita Valley where I currently live right now. Mm -hmm. And also growing up we kind of spent lots of time In Jalisco Mexico that's where my family's from yeah so every mostly every summer we would go out there and spend Mm -hmm. um you know a good portion of the summer visiting family visiting uh cousins and my aunts and uncles um and that was all through maybe until I was 12 or 13 years old
0: it's a lot of summers actually
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah and um were you born here
1: I was okay but my parents weren't they're okay. immigrants.
0: Okay. And are they still here?
1: Uh my mom is, okay. and my dad passed away when I was thirteen.
0: Okay. Wow. Really. Are yeah. you open to talking about that at all?
1: Sure. Okay. Yeah.
0: What what how did that as a that's a formative age,
1: thirteen? Right. It was the summer before starting high school. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's a tough time, I would imagine. I mean, it's always a tough time. Mm-hmm. But that might have been especially tough.
1: Yeah, he um he always t- he worked a lot. Mm. So we're we're a typical Mexican American family. Where um, my parents are immigrants. My father is the the man of the house, bringing in you know the money for the family. My mom's a stay at home mom, mm. and we always try to live in areas that, um, at least through my parents' eyes we would have a better opportunity. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm one of three kids, I'm the youngest. Uh, so my dad, he, as an immigrant, you're kind of like working a bunch of different odd jobs. He was a bartender. That was really his main profession. And this was before bartending was like- Mixology. <laughs> mixologist, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At that point, the bartender was like the priest because you just drown them in, in your sorrows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a bartender. He did uh, various different, like, uh, jobs throughout um, the weekend when he was not working. Um, he would bartend in one restaurant and then bartend in a different restaurant. So he was constantly, like, working three jobs. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get to see him as much. Yeah. Um, but he always seemed like this uh, this 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 untouchable guy, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was th- just like right before I turned 13, uh, this was either like at the end, like towards the end of 2000 or early 2001, um, my dad was snoring a lot. Hmm. And it was just kind of like this odd sort of snoring. Hmm. And my mom was getting concerned. She's like, you gotta go see the doctor, you gotta go see the doctor. And finally he did and they noticed that there was a tumor. There was something, or at least there was something mm-hmm. in his thyroid gland. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, and we're well, just like jumping right in. Yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> I did question, warn right you. Out the door. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they check it, and as soon as they started poking him to do a biopsy, um, it basically woke the cancer that was dormant. Whoa, and it could have been it triggered, do- it. it triggered it, yeah. And it was huh. dormant for who knows, maybe years, years, decades, I don't know, yeah. Um, and as soon as they started poking it, it just triggered it and it went crazy. Oh my god, and it just completely consumed him. Um, uh, so from the day that they did the biopsy, he lasted six months.
0: Oh my goodness, yeah, wow, yeah, oh, that's an intense like a a storm almost over a family to erupt like that
1: oh yeah i mean you gotta imagine my mom um stay home she doesn't work she's taking care of three kids uh all teenagers Mm -hmm. and the the life force of the family that keeps moving forward is gone yeah you know so that whole experience completely changed the way I see the world, how I see life and death, mm-hmm. um, and then also how I just approach my own work. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, it just kind of, it was such a huge event for, for our family that we all kind of reacted in different ways. Mm-hmm. And at the time, like, it didn't really register for me because I was so young. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I was 13 13 years old like the summer right before Mm -hmm. high school. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, so when you talk about how it affects your work, how would you say it affects your work now?
1: It doesn't affect the way like the actual creative work. It affects my work ethic, I think. Mm -hmm. And this constant drive to be working and (laughs) almost like this, ticking clock Mm. that I that I just kind of put in my head for some reason um and partly because I always saw my dad like just constantly working so work was always like the thing yeah
0: I was gonna say I think you come by that honestly yeah Mm -hmm.
1: but um just that sense of all this could just disappear Mm -hmm. right
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and you know I'm a true believer of like whatever we're doing here on this planet like we should at least strive for making some sort of dent in the universe Mm -hmm. have some sort of lasting impact whether it's through our relationships our work Mm. or anything like Mm -hmm. what's that purpose right and for me it's it's always been through the work that i'm doing Mm -hmm. and um i think that's just that sort of experience that he was 45 you know yeah. wow that's um, for
0: me that's three years away
1: my brother's almost at that age too yeah. um I'm 32 mm-hmm. so I just think like that oh my gosh that was so that's so young yeah. you're like you still really don't know what you're doing in life like you're kind of always trying to figure out no, but yeah. you're you're barely like at a halfway point if that mm-hmm. um so I just feel like I need to do as much as I can when I can. Yeah. Um, and that's, that has, I'm also, like, completely self-aware that that also leads to um, certain flaws. Mm. and
0: Like proclivities. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah.
1: And it, it, my work kind of just consumes my entire life. Yeah. So, but I'm, like, fully aware that that's what I want. At mm-hmm. least right now, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what I need.
0: And you may as well go all in if sure. you're going to do it.
1: Yeah, and it's something I love and I'm passionate about. I mean, my you know life and time is 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 everything for me. Mm-hmm. So if it was something I didn't necessarily care about or it just felt like it was a job, then that's a struggle. But mm-hmm. it's something I deeply care about and I want to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's okay for me because it doesn't feel like work.
0: So. Talk to me about life and time, what its genesis was and why, I mean, if you are so aware and conscious of what you want to do and how you want to make the dent, what, what did life and time do to, you know, start you off on that
1: path? Yeah, I always find it, it's more interesting where we're going now than how I began it because Mm. the way I began it, this was never part of the plan. You know, where we're at right now and what that means for myself and for our company and for our team. Um, It wasn't like we had this grand plan seven years ago. It was like, this is where we're headed and like, we're going to change the world with this company. It was not like that. Mm. It just kind of happened organically. And that vision was being shaped along the way. Um, Life and Time was just a creative outlet
0: really yeah
1: it was just a thing it was a hobby just a thing to stay uh creatively uh engaged Mm -hmm. um while i was running another company
0: what company were you running
1: it was a company called toy T O I, and they still they're still around um it's a design company Mm. so my background is in graphic design web design uh, mobile design, working with tech startups up in San Francisco.
0: Oh, I had no idea.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was my background. It was always like in the tech design sort of mm-hmm. community. Um, and I've always been a turbo student and a turbo employee.
0: Mm-hmm. Type A, 100%. Yeah. yeah.
1: So what is there left to do is <laughs> to be an entrepreneur, right? And uh, at this point, Life in Time is maybe my fourth or fifth company. At this point.
0: holy cow yeah at 32 wow there's, there's
1: been a few failures along the way um but the last two that have been the most successful is toy being one of them and then life and time mm-hmm. um so I co-founded it with another business partner 10 years ago or something like that mm-hmm. and it was great but I just I never felt even if I was a partner I didn't feel like fully um challenged or at least fully, uh, I don't know, creatively interested.
0: Was it more like satisfying clients' desires, that kind of thing? It's an agency. Yeah.
1: You know, we just get hired. We do the work for someone else and we close that door. Yeah. So there's no sense of ownership with the work, Mm -hmm. right? Um,
0: Was it focused on food or anything like that? No, it was all
1: uh, tech startups. Okay, got it. Yeah. So it was all in San Francisco, mm-hmm. working with VCs, working with uh, tech companies that got VC money. Mm-hmm. So we would come in and handle the development and the design of their new app, right? Yeah. So that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and while I was going up to San Francisco, after all the day meetings and meeting with the team, at night when we'd go out to eat, that was the, hmm. that was the part that I liked. Yeah. That was a thrill of just exploring the food culture of San Francisco.
0: Which is just infinite.
1: Infinite, yeah. right? And at that time, LA's food culture was barely bubbling up. Right. It yeah. wasn't what it is today. Um, and food and restaurants, that wasn't really something a part of my DNA before.
0: It's not like you grew up in a family that owned a restaurant or did no. you work in restaurants really? never oh okay no <laughs> yes nice yeah I've only ever worked I've waited tables a tiny tiny bit and it, I always feel kind of like a hack yeah for even talking about food because people who have are such badasses and yeah they, I just feel and like, they got a
1: whole story yeah. like their parents had a restaurant all that right I feel like a hack too I feel like we forced ourselves into into this industry hmm. and there's sometimes like Imposter syndrome, but now I'm, like, fully embracing it. Um, But journalism wasn't even part of my history, food, um, none of that. Publishing, we all just kind of just figured it out along the way. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of bright-eyed innocence of, like, learning about food at that time, Mm -hmm. that kind of helped us define what life and time would eventually become. Um, So my team and I, we would go out and eat all these cool restaurants up in the Bay Area. And I was just becoming so fascinated with, Mm. like, learning the story behind it. Um, Because beforehand, like, I was, you know, my diet was, like, uh, cereal (laughs) and fast food. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I read this as I was, like, learning about food, where it comes from, restaurants and the chef culture. I read... The Omnivore's Dilemma. Have you read that? that? Was,
0: well, that was a turning point for me also. Yeah. It Wasn't was a it huge, it was huge. like the scales fell from my eyes.
1: Oh my God. I read that book
0: mm.
1: and like I had to put it down and I'm like, what have we been eating yeah, this entire time?
0: Right. I love the way he sets that book up. Aren't there three meals that he follows? Yeah. There's like a fast food meal, there's a Whole Foods organic meal, and then there's Joel Salatin's, um, you know, like a, an actual farm to table meal. Yeah. It, it changed was, my life
1: and this was like when did that book come out like it's over a decade old
0: yeah it is I think it was like 2007 I want to say
1: yeah like that book completely changed everything for mm-hmm. me and I was like okay now I really want to know where our food is coming from mm-hmm. who's cooking it uh, food systems food ways and as I was starting to go down this path of research I realized that there wasn't there weren't many outlets to kind of inform us about food ways and restaurant culture the way that resonated with me
0: yeah yep
1: you could find it in books you could find it like mm-hmm. in michael Pollan's books yeah but not in a media cool sexy publication way
0: i think there's only one other place though that you can find it and that's the new yorker because they have such long form i mean i remember yeah. that about Life and time, the thing that attracted me to it is the appreciation of long-form writing. Yeah. We don't have much of that.
1: You know, so the you fact... Could, you could only find it in places that were not food outlets. We
0: talked about this once before.
1: Yeah. Yes, that's right. Even, um, you know, everyone saw the New York Times pumps out really good stuff. Um, now they have like a cooking section, but... Mm like you said, The New Yorker does an incredible job. When they do a story on food, I'm like, okay, here we go. Yeah. Now they're just gonna <laughs> put all of hours. us to shame. <laughs> it puts the food media yeah. landscape to shame. Yeah. Um, or when uh, Malcolm Gladwell, right? Yeah. when he does his podcast about uh, the McDonald's fries and the origin of the McDonald's fries right. with his show um
0: the uh, one of my favorites is the college um the dining at my alma mater at vassar vassar college he talks about that's right dining there um and how they've skimped on paying for good dining there so that they could provide scholarships mm-hmm. for students but he does a bang up job of seeing the the whole picture, the whole picture. Yeah. which is what i know what we appreciate about good investigative and storytelling mm-hmm. food
1: writing and I just became obsessed with that, obsessed mm. with that style of storytelling. Um, now you see a lot more amazing long form food journalism. Yeah, It's still not at the point where I wish it was, but it's evolved quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just look at all the different James Beard awards that yeah. go to journalists for just amazing, amazing pieces of content. Um, but seven, eight years ago, it wasn't really what it was today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, selfishly, I wanted us to uncover those stories ourselves because we couldn't really find them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, we decided to just start documenting ourselves. Yeah. And we were storytellers, at least in our own way. Um, you know, our team was made up of filmmakers, photographers. Like, we were working with tech companies, but we were also building content for them too, Mm -hmm. short films um, you know shooting photography making content look great
0: are you in on that are you filmmaker I mean I know I know that you produce film but are you a technical filmmaker and photographer and all that
1: yeah so through life in time I kind of put on all these different hats and I learned new uh, skills and crafts you know Mm -hmm. and uh, now I can say like I guess I am a filmmaker photographer producer entrepreneur editor in chief Mm -hmm. like I've worn all the hats yeah and I'm the type of person that needs to I need to like taste it I need to feel it I need to experience something in order to understand it Mm -hmm. and if you tell me like that pan is hot I'm not gonna believe you until I put my (laughs) hand on it (laughs) like I'm that stubborn yeah um and that stubbornness has led me to find ways to learn new skills so I could fully understand it and then I could kind of impart that back onto a team and let them run it. Mm -hmm. So I have enough context and knowledge of how great people work and what they need because now I at least have a sense of parameters based on my own experiences. So I know how to uh, speak the language, I know how to, uh, what to look for. Mm -hmm. And now when I work with a photographer, like I've shot many, many shoots now at this point. So Mm -hmm. I'm able to have a different conversation with them as far as like what we need. Mm. Um, Or the opposite has happened where we work with a photographer and I'm not happy with the end product. And I'm like, Mm. shit, I could just shoot it myself and just figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that's always been my the way I approach anything in life, just I'll just figure it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a I didn't finish college, don't have a college degree. Mm-hmm. I just kind of figure it out on my own. I'm like, ah, how can I hack my way through mm-hmm. life? You know, find efficiencies, mm-hmm. um, and instead of going through life in a set, predetermined way, and that's how society tells you to to do it, mm-hmm. I'm gonna find a way to kind of hack my way and find shortcuts.
0: Oh God, you've certainly done that. With life and time, when you first, um, did you have to scrape a bunch of money together to put out your first issue?
1: I scraped together my own money, yeah. yeah. So we have no, we've never received any funding before. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's good and bad. Good because it's, a, it's far more better to have a, a, a profit and loss company Mm-hmm. Where it's built like a business where you know, you make profit and you have losses You're not playing with other people's money.
0: Yeah, I agree
1: And I came from that world I came from that tech world where you're given millions of dollars of funding and you need to burn through that yeah. in a year and a Half and then you have to do another fundraising round.
0: That scares me so much. It's ridiculous so much. Yeah,
1: it's an entire bubble and now so many of these companies like they don't even exist.
0: Yeah, it's not even real
1: Yeah, it's yeah. just monopoly money. Yeah the founders have no idea how to run a company because they're playing with other people's money. Mm. Um, and then you just burn through so much money. And then once you have so much of this like VC debt, now it's time to turn around and try to make a profit and make a business. Eesh. And you're so knee deep into the debt of these VCs mm. that it's almost impossible to try to make that money back. Yeah. So the goal is to just get bought mm-hmm. by Google and these other companies. So it's never really to make a business it's just to get acquired right so, so you I, never did that i never did that and it doesn't mean that i would have if, if circumstances were different it's just that monetizing media and journalism is extremely difficult it's really hard to find funding for those type of businesses yeah it's just the money's not there yeah you know you get into it because you believe in the journalism.
0: (laughs) You don't get into it to make a living, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, So I I always knew there had to be some sort of revenue model. Otherwise, there was no way to fund journalism. Mm -hmm. So through my experience of running an agency, we created a production agency on our end which we would get hired to shoot short films for brands, create content for them as well. Mm-hmm. So we're still in the service, client service business, mm-hmm. s- still to this day. It's just one aspect of life and time that it funds everything else. Mm-hmm. But I feel like both both worlds kind of need each other. The editorial is what gets our foot in the door and creates all the relationships and the connections we have, mm-hmm. which l- usually lead to business opportunities.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you say you're still in the client services business, what does that mean exactly? You still have clients? We do.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 for sure. So we, um, you know, we work with uh, many food-related and beverage clients, Mm -hmm. creating content for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, you know, two weeks, we're traveling up to um, further north of of San Francisco uh, to document harvesting of olives. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a a short film for this olive oil company, um, which is great. And that's what pays the bills. Yeah. Running that side of the business has led to other opportunities in television as well.
0: Yeah. So I want to hear about, I mean, the work that you've done with Migrant Kitchen has been kind of unbelievable. I mean, not, it is believable. It's just incredible.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So how did you get that
1: off the ground? That was an interesting story because it just kind of fell on my lap. Mm. While we were building a production company, this was th- three and a half, almost four years ago. Um, we, we were shooting for all sorts of different brands. An associate producer at KCT, which is the PBS affiliate for SoCal. Um,
0: the one I grew up watching Mr. Rogers on. There you go. Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, they got wind of life and time and saw some of her content. The, mo- the longest piece of content that we've ever done was like maybe f- four minutes,
2: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
1: So they saw some of our content. they were like, oh, this looks great. They sent me an email and they asked me for a meeting and they were starting to develop their own original content around food. Mm. And they were like, do you want to partner up? Do you want to create something together? Like, do you
0: want to be in charge?
1: Yeah. Do you want to create a show together?
0: Wow. You're so lucky. I mean, and I know
1: you earned it, but that's so cool it was it was phenomenal. I mean, it was like now we're going through like the Hollywood pipeline of selling uh, other shows, mm-hmm. and it's such a grind like it that doesn't r- really happen, yeah, very um, dust
0: very <laughs> dust,
1: and so much of it falls on our executive producer at k c t juan Davis, who um he just believed in this type of content and he also believed in life and time. Mm. Now he's like a mentor of mine, um, and he's, I sat down with him. We had such a great conversation, and he said, come back in a few weeks. Pitch me some ideas for, for a show. Mm-hmm. And a show around immigrants and food, which, you know, became the Myron Kitchen, was one of those ideas. Mm-hmm. And this was before Trump was president. This was before Trump even announced. Mm-hmm. So the, there wasn't this huge, like, immigration rhetoric going around like talking about immigrants was still not really the hot topic you yeah. know um, so I doubt we could even sell that type of show to any other network mm-hmm. at the time um, it would even still be difficult to sell now without a host mm. but at that, time, it is hostless it's hostless
0: right and now that I think about it yeah
1: it's really difficult to try to sell those type of shows
0: yeah people uh, I know that networks really love Somebody, personality. Uh, yeah, personality, yeah. that's right. It's safe, it's yeah. a proven model. Mm.
1: When you rely so much on like just normal, regular people to tell their own story, it's, it's a huge risk.
0: Yeah, right.
1: And what
0: happened, because you don't know how well those people will do. Yeah. That is a big risk.
1: Yeah, and sometimes people just want to watch shows because they they want to watch anything Bourdain. They like the yeah. personality.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, they kind of hold your hand. Yeah. You know? And that's fine, but for me, there's only Anthony Bourdain, and then there's everything else.
0: Right. He does it just fine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, he's the gold standard, So, and everybody wants to reach that level, and they're terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, no one could reach that sort of charisma um And especially in the food world, like we got some weird, weird people in the food world. Yes, we do. You You know? know, what's
0: interesting about him also is we're talking about New Yorker and books that do the kind of media we like to see. Anthony Bourdain was a polymath. He was interested in everything. He was not only a food personality. He was also kind of a reluctant guy in front of the camera. Yeah, He approached things so differently. So you can't even say that he was a cookie cutter. You know, he... The food network didn't even work for him it, yeah. it was not a good fit so what did he wind up on a bravo i think or something like that that was well, at the f- end he
1: was at cnn
0: that's right which yeah. is hardly food specific yeah so he's the only one who can do that he, he the only, cause broke the
1: mold so much responsibility falls on the host and it could all just crumble because either they're just like a little weird on camera, they're not, charis- <laughs> you know, they're not, they don't have the right charisma, mm. or they're just asking dumb questions. Um, and I didn't want that. So we started to work together at the Meyer Kitchen. And I remember Juan asking me, he's like, can you, is this something you could do? And I was like, Shh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, leave the meeting. I was, like, calling up my team, like, <laughs> my how feet? the hell are we going to do this? <laughs> oh. Like, we've never done anything beyond, like, four minutes. Now it's, like, mm. a show, episodic content. Mm. Um, so it was, like, a huge learning curve. But we figured it out. And KZT was kind of, like, training wheels for us mm. because they're also um, public media And budgets weren't great. We had limited resources. I mean, limited resources. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had a small team. They were kind of a small team. Um, And there was a lot of just like flexibility and creative freedom as long as the journalism was there. That was number one. The visual aspect of it was all us yeah and, and it's
0: so big it's a it's a character in itself
1: yeah the style the music everything mm-hmm. we had a touch you know i didn't even want to license music i wanted to create original music yeah. with a composer mm-hmm. and we did all that so we kind of set our own standard so high that i think we're the one we're like our own enemy because like we have limited resources limited funds and we're also producing something that is looks high production value. Right. And we were we were able to squeeze out every ounce of creativity from our team. And it's become the most difficult thing we've ever done. Mm-hmm. And fast forward to today, we're in pre-production for our fourth season. Yeah. And things are a little bit better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's still Still public media. I mean, yeah. still a grind.
0: I was going to ask you after you've won your second Emmy, right? Second Three. Emmy. Three.
1: <gasps> Thank you very much. Pardon Every season. Me. I am
0: so <laughs> embarrassed. I didn't know that. Okay, so after you've won your third Emmy, I would imagine that the funding, that it wouldn't be such a grind. But is it still?
1: It's always the the nature of public media is always going to be a there's 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 going to be a slight squeeze. Yeah. Because and now we're. Far more aware of it, because now we know how Hollywood functions. We are represented by, you know, an agency. We're doing pitches. We're going through the traditional route of pitching, mm-hmm. going to big networks now. So we're seeing, like, how it all functions now. With a
0: new show? With,
1: With different shows. Okay. Show, show ideas. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the My kitchen is still, that's our baby. That's yeah. still going. Um, but, you know, it's not like Netflix budgets. Yeah which are huge yeah you know even in the documentary space which Mm -hmm. is always less than scripted but even with netflix or amazon any of these big players it's huge amounts of money Mm -hmm. um we're still with pbs over here slash kct um and it's just a different landscape yeah so the resources are a little bit more limited but every season does get better Mm -hmm. um which has also led to other opportunities so that's built our credibility around Hollywood and our ability to be filmmakers. Mm. Having something on broadcast is still a huge prestige among the industry.
0: Totally. Well, I was just going to say, what's it like to see that on a television? Or, I didn't get you know, to see
1: it because I,
0: <laughs> I, I don't have a TV either. So I'm like, I guess you could watch it after the fact. I it know. Was, but
1: it, those nights were so exciting because it would launch online first mm-hmm. and everybody could stream it for free and then that night it would launch on broadcast at like a specific hour and mm. i don't have television
0: does anyone have yeah. a tv
1: <laughs> so i was just like this is so exciting but i don't get to see it
0: right that's so funny isn't that yeah. the nature of oh gosh that's just modern life
1: yeah 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 which is which is it's just, it's just exciting but um and then having the Emmys was also opened up a new doors. Mm-hmm. Now people are taking you more seriously. Um, so every, I always try to see every project and every opportunity to hopefully lead to something else. Yeah. And that's sort of the game plan that, um, you've kind of built for life and time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we have to like do many things cause that's leading to all other opportunities that either shine or fail we've had plenty of projects fail.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And I think that's also how we survive too. If we just stuck to one thing, I don't think we would be here anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a really good team too. What, who's in that team? How many people are there that you, your core peeps that help you make everything happen?
1: The core like editorial team is five of us. Okay. And then we work with a network of contributors around the world. So over at this point, maybe 200, 300 people around the world. Including moi. Of course. I'm one of your contributors. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I got, I got San Luis Obispo County covered. Down. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I know you are international. I remember um, seeing that you were working with Emiko Davies, who is one of my all-time favorites yeah. in Florence. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, you guys really get around. You have some good people out we there. We try. Mm-hmm. And
1: at least from the get-go, the, the one thing that was always from the beginning was we had to be international. Hmm. I didn't just want to be LA-based or California-based. I wanted to travel the world through our work Mm -hmm. because I was just so fascinated with culture in itself. To me, i just so fascinated with just learning about culture, Mm -hmm. the anthropology around why everything exists. And I'm like a true believer of everything that we are and we do. We're a product of so many other factors that have contributed to who we are, as especially people. as Americans, especially as Americans, mm-hmm. and that sort of cultural um, DNA is, I think, what matters in food.
2: Yeah.
1: A chef isn't a chef just because that's who they are. It was a it was a combination of all these other experiences that led him, or at least created a, an environment for him to become, or her a chef Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now we're starting to see that more with minority food and ethnic food Mm -hmm. is you're having these um, brown and black chefs take control of their identity Mm -hmm. and now look at their own heritage and say you know what I could create food modern food or or creative food that's based on my heritage and my authenticity Mm -hmm. and those experiences than working for you know a european style restaurant, yeah which they have no personal connection to
0: right right with um with respect to that, I have to believe that the fact that you're based out of l a has something to do with that because that is so totally happening here of course l a yeah. has become by many standards the food capital the of city. the city yeah the city yeah,
1: yeah. and uh, that also opened up so many, so much, so many of our eyes to like what is possible with culture, experiences, and food because we, we're also kind of like in a bubble
2: mm-hmm.
1: living here in L.A. Like mm-hmm. it just, it's so natural for us to be amongst so many different immigrants and cultures mm-hmm. that that creates its own culture in itself. What
0: does that mean? I mean, where, how do you describe
1: that? I think in the context of, of food, um, you have these. Now we're at, we're at a point where you have these um, minority chefs, these hyphenated immigrants, mm-hmm. the Mexican Americans, the Japanese Americans, where they kind of group like I did. Where I wasn't born in Mexico. I had one foot in Mexico and another foot in America, mm-hmm. and that kind of creates this m- weird middle ground.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're constantly looking for your own identity, and I wasn't brown enough for Mexico. I wasn't white enough for America. Mm. So you're kind of like, where do I fit in this whole thing? Not one or the other. One, Yeah, mm-hmm. not one or the other. My identity now feels very LA County. Yes. And that's my identity. That's, I feel like Angelino, mm-hmm. not Mexican, not anything else. Mm. And we're starting to see a lot of that with, with the restaurant and, and, and food culture here where you can't really say it's one thing or the other because it's a mix, you know? Mm -hmm. And older generations or there's there's people from specific cultures that they're looking for traditional authentic food, and they go to, you know, Gorilla Tacos or Nightshade here in the Arts District. And it's like that's not authentic. That's is not this traditional. Isn't my yeah, yeah. it's not my food, but it is. Mm, yeah, you know, to that specific person, because they grew up with all these different cultures. Yeah. So you're tasting something that is Chinese, using Mexican ingredients, right. And techniques and spices from another culture, and it's Could all be kind French. Of mixed yeah, it. yeah, right, right. Um, and the chef had like French training, mm-hmm. but their background is from China. Yeah. And so. But we have so many, like, Latin ingredients here. It's, it's all mixed yeah. in. to me, that is the most special place to be in right now. And that's yeah. why I think that's why L.A. is so interesting. Because hmm. it's all of these cultures mixing in yeah. and creating new cultures. And, and it's, a, it's a new evolution of, of where food is going.
0: But you're saying that that hyphenated culture can become its own bubble.
1: It could become its own bubble in a place like L.A. because uh, socially and politically we become so open to so many other cultures mm-hmm. that um if you go to different parts of the country that aren't a part of all these cultures mixing together on a daily basis where it's
0: just you know it's day it's a a regular thing
1: it's a rig re- yeah exactly yeah um like there's still places around the country where it's still like very stark like You Mm -hmm. still have your white community over here and you have your black community over here. Mm -hmm. And like, it's still like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you go to L.A. or New York, these like major metro areas where it's just a bunch of cultures mixed in together. Mm -hmm. So we're all a product of our environment. So if you continuously grew up in a place like that, you're going to see the world differently. Mm -hmm. And you're going to hopefully be more open to other cultures or at least create more empathy towards the struggles of other cultures that they're facing yeah um and that to me is what la has kind of done for me Mm -hmm. is created a a space for empathy for others Mm -hmm. and there's there might be some challenges that i'm not directly being faced with but maybe another brown person might Mm -hmm. so i could kind of like i feel that sort of connection
2: yeah
1: um and i was just having this conversation with another Another chef who is uh, Asian-American and there's a solidarity among among Asian-Americans here in LA Mm -hmm. that I don't see anywhere else. It's
0: crazy. I completely agree.
1: It's like the Japanese mix in with the Chinese and the Koreans and it's the Filipinos. And it's you're not any of those cultures. You're Asian-American. And that to me is so cool. Mm -hmm. Like we're all in this together. The way you grew up is similar to how i grew up i listen to your music but i eat my (laughs) own food and then there's also like a mix of like the mexican community Mm -hmm. so that to me is so cool and so beautiful and i think that's what the Myron kitchen represents you know at least for the past three seasons because it's all based in california
0: right right do you want to see that expand outside california it is expanding Uh oh yeah the next
1: season is now Uh, or the whole country is our jurisdiction. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. What do you, as far as, I know you won't answer this, but (laughs) as far as like. I want an open book. Well, the penultimate, you know, what is the biggest goal that you, well, two questions. Okay. So backing up, you said that you wanted to make a dent. So what do you see life and time in Migrant Kitchen making a dent in?
1: Hopefully our work and life and time through the work of the Meyer Kitchen and everything else that we do, there will be some sort of purpose of why we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And hopefully there is an audience that feels like they're resonating with those stories and it means something to them. Mm -hmm. And the type of stories that we tell, I would hope that there's purpose to it. And as long as there's purpose to it and not just creating content for the sake of content, Mm -hmm. which there's a ton of that. Um, It goes back to the root of what journalism really means, you know, and what it is. Mm -hmm. And within food, the food media landscape, it's such a weird gray area when it comes to journalism. Some of it is journalism. Some of it is newsworthy. Other times it's just, oh, that's cute.
0: Like fan fiction almost. Yeah. 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 And
1: it's just like, since I didn't really come from a food media background, I feel like we're always the outliers, you know, we don't hang around with other food bloggers. We rarely go on like media dinners or media lunches. I mean, ask them, like we hardly ever take up their- (laughs) Your publicists.
0: They're like, please, Antonio, could you please go to this thing? You say, no, no, I will not.
1: (laughs) Like we're constantly getting invitations. And um, sometimes, you know, we say yes and we go experience it if we see a deeper meaning and connection to it that we could explore Mm. but so much of it is just so um like gluttonous just like it's just i don't know what what it is like why why do we need to tell the rest of the world about the top 10 places where chefs eat out you know after hours like i don't really care about any of that
0: that's not true to your mission from the beginning that hasn't been the mission
1: yeah so i would hope that as long as we're always searching for purpose with our work, that's always going to define the type of work that we do and to not lose sight because it's sometimes easy to lose sight because this is, this can be a very luxury industry.
0: Yeah. Oh, hundred percent.
1: Right. And I don't want to lose sight of becoming, you know, I don't want to become that either. Yeah. So if we could find the anthropology and the and the human stories using food,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we have at least done something. Yeah, You know, so hopefully that's gonna be the dent that we're, that we're making where our content is actually informing and in you're being educated. Like I'm a huge believer in education too. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I also like working with PBS because that's what they do, they yes. educate. Right. And they have creative freedom, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of also just trained me and how we approach stories. Working with the Myron Kitchen completely changed the way we approach our stories as well, because that formula forced us to always look at what's the journalism behind what we're doing Mm -hmm. and the stories, and if we're sitting down with a chef, it's not just about their food, but can we learn about the historical context of their environment?
0: Totally, yes.
1: If we're doing a story or um, an episode on a Michelin star chef in Chinatown, San Francisco, Why does that restaurant and that chef exist? Mm -hmm. So we keep on peeling the layers and we go all the way back to the beginning of Chinese Americans or the beginning of Chinese immigrants Mm -hmm. entering California. There's so much racism and so much challenges that they had to face that has a ripple effect to where we are today. And I think food is the perfect vehicle to identify that ripple effect.
0: Mm -hmm. As you're talking, I'm thinking, I don't think this could happen in any well, I don't, I was thinking old world, new world. I don't think a magazine like what your publication like yours or a show like yours, or even a podcast like this could exist anywhere except the new world. Because so much of it, Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, South Africa, America, Canada, we are, we are offshoots of something bigger where sure. lots of people pile on and now we have a story. Where do you come from? Where do you come from? Why am I eating this? Why am I eating this here? Yeah, and and you know how do you prepare something that in your home country requires these ingredients and you can't get them here? So how do you make do? Yeah. Now we can get interested.
1: Right. Yeah. And you can't escape those migrations that ended in America. And I think that leads into that American curiosity. Mm. We're so curious Mm -hmm. just as Americans. And I think the curiosity comes from a lack of rooted identity. Mm. Because if you look at the identity of what really makes like an Italian Italian Mm -hmm. or even a Mexican, you could really really identify that. And it stems from family, the way you grew up, the way they see food the way that The way that we see food is so different than the way others see food. Mm-hmm. Why are Americans constantly fantasizing about how the French eat yeah. or how the Italians eat? Mm-hmm. No other country outside of America is fantasizing about how Americans eat <laughs> <laughs> we're We're the only ones that were constantly like, "Oh, like the French, yeah. you know, or I went to Florence and like I just fell in love with <laughs> with this and this and that like there's all these like it's so romantic. Yeah. No other culture is saying the same thing about America. They might be saying about other countries, but yes. America never had that identity yeah. with food. No romance, no romance. Yeah. You know? Um but what we do have is all that mixture of all these other places trying to find a sense of home in this new country Mm -hmm. so I think that 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 aspect of always being from somewhere else and then the kids that kind of stem from those immigrants
0: yeah that's interesting you start to
1: lose that sort of identity that was so rooted in those other countries so Mm -hmm. I think that's what leads to this curiosity of like who are we Mm -hmm. and this this sort of existential American perspective, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that leads to um, incredible storytellers and creatives. So I think, you know, we have, we're in such a beautiful time of telling stories. Mm -hmm. And like your podcast, the work that we're trying to do stems from just like that curiosity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I ask everybody on here what they would have for their final meal. You're not being executed or anything. It's just like you want to end on a good note. And given your um, your experience here, I mean, I'm wondering, is that, would you eat here? Would you have something out in LA?
1: I would have something at home. Something that was cooked by my mom. Yeah, yeah. what would that be? Um, either chilaquiles, hmm. chilaquiles with, refried beans and some cotija cheese mm-hmm. and a freshly made salsa with maybe like a from a molcajete that to me i just remember that being some of the best that was like breakfast for us mm. and just getting up in the morning and just like smelling freshly made chilaquiles i don't know if you've had it before yes i have yeah
0: and we make it at home there It's you one go. of the best it's just it's easy so comforting so fresh yeah
1: it's like a warm blanket and mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll crack an egg on top. So, to me, a home cooked meal from my mom, that's like, that's what I resonate with now. And growing up, I didn't really resonate with it. I didn't realize how good I had it because mm-hmm. I was fascinated with American culture. I wanted fast food, I wanted McDonald's because that's what all my other friends were eating. But growing up in a, in a Mexican household, like, you always ate Mexican food. So it was everything i knew but i was like this is boring and then you grow up and you read michael Pollan, and then you realize like oh my god like i had it so good and now that's all i want yeah. <laughs> so chilaquiles, refried beans that's the perfect meal
0: that's a good answer thank you so much for taking time to thanks, talk jamie. to me thank you consumed is produced by me jamie lewis and edited by chris lambert thanks again for listening to this podcast And be sure to support the good folks who join me each episode. To learn more about any of my guests, visit letsgetconsumed.com. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis.